1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Please be seated. All right, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Everybody doing all right? <laughs> all right, well, we'll take that. Hey, uh, one more thing to be praying for, uh, one more group. I don't know if it was mentioned up here, but uh, this this week, actually, our Faith Explorers uh, group, a lot of our teenagers and uh, teen leaders are going to be over in Putnam Village uh, just sharing good news of Christ and having a lot of fun uh, with some of the kids and the families over there in Putnam. Uh, that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the evening from like 6.30 to 8. Uh, and so you want to certainly be praying for them. Uh, if you know anybody over in Putnam, uh, boy, they, I'm sure they would enjoy being a part of that. Uh, but I know your prayers especially will be appreciated. Uh, those teens and the teen leaders, they've been uh, doing a lot of work preparing for that over the past month or so. Uh, yeah, so just keep them in prayer and feel free to come out and see what they're doing if you want. Okay, uh, today we're starting, uh, more officially, our, our summer series. Uh, we're taking a break from the book of Revelation. We'll come back to that again in the fall. Uh, but over the summer, we're, we're going to be uh, just doing something a little bit different, and we're going to be looking at some very difficult questions that people often have in relation to Jesus, uh, Christianity, what it means to be a part of a church family, and all that. Uh, it's a little bit out of the norm. Usually uh, here we're just kind of working our way through books of the Bible, uh, but over the summer, we're going to be uh, just pausing with that to address some of these specific questions, some of these difficult and challenging questions that people often have, again, in relation to who Jesus is, what it means to be a follower of him. And in particular, we're looking at uh, difficult questions that oftentimes become barriers uh, or major hindrances to people trusting Christ uh, and trusting their life to him. Uh, and so we just want to take an honest look at some of these questions and see how the Bible might uh, address these questions. And we're doing that for a couple reasons. All right, one, uh, we're going to look at these questions, right, because uh, it is my hope that uh, Grace Church will always be a place where you can ask questions. And you can ask those questions safely, not in fear of judgment, or you can ask those questions uh, not fearing that we'll just write them off, but that they'll actually be heard, be listened to, be taken very seriously, and, and also being tried to answer uh, very thoughtfully as well, too. Right? I want that to be characteristic of who we are, always. 
We're looking at these questions, too, because uh, I think if we're honest, some of the questions we're going to look at are not just questions that people outside of the church have, but they're questions that maybe we've uh, asked ourselves or we've, you know, experienced and maybe we've had to wrestle with or think through carefully. So we're trying to, you know, address questions maybe that we think through ourselves, especially I, I think a lot of our younger people. Uh, but then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, at least in my own mind, uh, we're talking about these things because my hope is, is that we will grow uh, in our equipping to more faithfully live out our calling as ambassadors of Christ. I mean, that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that it's not just a personal, private walk with Jesus, but it's a public one. And we're called to represent him, to be ambassadors for him, to speak on his behalf. And some of that means uh, being prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have within you, should someone ever ask. And so we're walking through this so that we'll be thinking regularly about what our friends, neighbors, family, co-workers might be thinking about and just thinking how we can interact with that, okay? So we're going to look at tough questions over the summer, you know, what about suffering? How does a good and gracious God allow suffering? Uh, or what about all the problems in the institutional church that we hear about, you know, whatever? Or uh, what about science you know, in relation to the Bible? Or what about sexuality in relation to the Bible? Uh, or how can I even trust my Bible to begin with, right? Some of these very important and yet some challenging questions where we're going to try to walk through some of those. And this morning, uh, we're, we're kind of doing like an intro question or a question that I, I kind of feel is kind of like a, a bigger overarching question that a lot of the other questions maybe kind of flow out of. And basically, we're asking the question this morning, because a lot of people are going to ask this question out there, isn't Christianity a straitjacket of sorts, right? Isn't Christianity just this restraint on my personal freedom, right? This restraint on my, you know, how I want to express all that I am or this life that I want to live in pursuit of my goals and my dreams and my expectations. In other words, isn't Christianity an enemy with all of its rules, standards of holiness, you know, isn't that all oh, just an enemy to my personal freedom. Okay? And it's an important question because, right, human freedom, human liberty is a value of the highest order, especially in American culture. Uh, we could, we could do a quick, uh, experiment here. I'm gonna start singing a song. You sing along with me as you know it. It's time to test. No, no, no. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and breakthrough. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Everybody, I'm... Oh, wow, that was weak. Seriously? You all didn't go through <laughs> the torment that went through in our house for the better part of five years? Every time I walked home, somebody is singing this song, let it go, let it go. Every time I got in... Oh, you didn't know that, Nate? Come on. All right, well, maybe, maybe one day. I don't know. Every time I got into the car, somebody's wanting to sing, let it go. Every time I went to a school talent show, it seemed like multiple people were singing, let it go. And so I wonder, right, if you had kids that were walking around the house singing this song all the time, and I go, oh, isn't that cute? And after year three or four or five, okay, this is not cute anymore. But I wonder if at any point you're starting to say, well, isn't this interesting? My kid's walking around, and, he's, and he or she is singing this song that just embodies the American ethic in this unique cultural moment. And I wonder what other cultures think about our kids all singing this song, Let It Go. See, because here's why I say that, right? 
that song does embody the song about a Disney princess that is finally letting go of all the constraints that had bound her and all the constraints that had kept her, whatever, from being who she truly is. Right? She's letting it go. Right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free now. And again, that is a, uh, man, that, that is the American ethic and value at, at, at its highest level. And the Wall Street Journal it's the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, I forget. They, they have sometimes have these inserts um, where they do interviews with uh, global heroes, they call them. Uh, and not too long ago, they were interviewing uh, an American actress, you know, just on some, asking them, you know, what are some th- fundamental things that people can do to make the world a better place? Uh, and I think the question was, at, was specific, was asked, what is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? And she answered, Look for your own truth and live your own truth instead of repeating anyone else's. Uh, she wanted to say, what's crucial for me is to make my audiences question old beliefs. Uh, she encourages her fans daily to engage in the practice of waking up and saying, what do I need today? And then go and get it, right? And she's not alone. Right? This, is, this is just a common American ethos nowadays, right? Where you, you are your own. Right? And truth is, ironically, um, a very personal thing. And so life, a life well lived or a life lived virtuously or the good life is one, under, coming to understand your truth and then authentically living that truth and not constraining that or not conforming that truth to anybody else's truth, right? Because that's just going to be oppressive and it's going to restrict you, right? The American life well lived is one where you know your truth and you live that truth to the full, authentically. Okay, but I mentioned, you know, the question, well, I wonder what other cultures might think about this. Because, right, there are plenty of cultures all around the world, and certainly are plenty of cultures all throughout history that would take issue with that ethic, or they would take issue with this notion that you are your own, that you belong to yourself. And there's all sorts of cultures all around the world, cultures all throughout history that would say, yeah, actually, we're more of the, per- of the persuasion that you belong uh, not just to yourself, but you belong to a community or a family or a tribe. And actually, the pathway of the good life is living, not just belonging to yourself, but living in belonging with that community. And not just taking and using that community and family to prop up your own dreams and ideals, but instead conforming your life, actually, to the shared values of the community or the family, or conforming your life to the common good. Okay, and I say all that to say that, okay, this... American ideal that we have, you've got to understand your own truth and live your own truth on your own terms, right? That's a unique perspective. It's not a universal, commonly shared assumption about life. And I guess part of the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, a lot of these questions that we're going to ask, they come out of certain assumptions that we have about the way life is. And sometimes what's very helpful is to just to take a step back and say, okay, wait a second. I wonder how many of my assumptions are actually conditioned in me by the culture around me, which then might lead to the question, well, I wonder, is that really accurate? And is that really true? And is that really the pathway of the good life or a life that is well-lived? And maybe it's into that question uh, that uh, had Becky read <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And I think has first, which I think has some very practical things to, uh, to address that with. And you say, well, what in the world does a passage about prostitution have to do with this question that we're asking here this morning? Okay, well, let's talk about that. All right, yeah, Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he addresses a lot of things in this book. But in this short little passage here, he's going after uh, the practice of guys in the church going and listing the services of a prostitute. Right? Prostitution was a big business in ancient Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a port town, meaning people were always coming in and out of Corinth. And so that's, you know, a ripe setting for prostitution to flourish. And in the ancient world, in an ancient patriarchal society, right, the desires and the needs of the men were always first and foremost. And so if a guy, you know, woke up and was desiring sexual activity, and for whatever reason that wasn't happening to his liking at home, it was perfectly legitimate for him to go and enlist the services of a prostitute. I even had prostitution going on all over in uh, ancient pagan religion, pagan worship practices. It was just a very common thing. All right, and Paul's writing to the church where probably this practice had sort of made its way into the church and among the guys in the church, and Paul said, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't do that here. That's not becoming of a follower of Jesus. And, okay, so here's the thing. What I find important for our discussion and also very just fascinating about discussion is the reasons he gives for that. The reasons for why this is not appropriate for the followers of Jesus within the church. And for instance, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, uh, you know, don't uh, engage in prostitution uh, because, well, you know, whether you realize it or not, uh, those women might be there forcibly. They might be there against their own will. Right? They maybe have been abducted and forced into prostitution, and they might have become slaves from the Roman wars, or maybe they're just there because it's the only way to squeak out a meager earning and existence in life so that they can pay for their, whatever, their food and for the lives of their kids. Like, Paul doesn't say that. Or Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, come on. You shouldn't just take and use another person's body, pay for another person's body, and just take and consume it to satisfy your own desires and then discard it whenever you're done. No, we don't do that. Jesus is... Paul doesn't go down that road. He doesn't go down the road of, hey, there might be children born. What are you going to do with those kids? Are you going to care for them? He doesn't even go down the road here in this passage. Hey, you have a wife at home who you are called to be faithful to. So what are you doing going running around with a prostitute? Okay, all very important and very true things, right, that Paul will address in other passages. But here, that's not his argument. Did you pick up what his argument here is in this passage? It's two things. One... It's the body was not meant for sexual immorality. He says that a couple times. And two, you belong to Jesus. Right? In other words, Paul's whole argument, at least in this passage, why you need to keep prostitution out of the church, is based on an argument of design and belonging. Right? And those are two things I want to explore here just briefly with you. All right, let's talk about this business of design. Nate, I heard that word design showing up in your prayer multiple times. We're going to talk about this business of design. Uh, you pick up in the beginning of the passage there, uh, Paul, he actually quotes some popular sayings, some that might have been in the church, some in the broader culture, and he adds to them a little bit. Like, for instance, all things are lawful for me. He quotes. He's quoting there. It might be a quote that's worked its way into the church. 
Maybe people in Corinth had heard Paul talk about how we are no longer under the old Jewish law and we are set free from that in a certain way. And so people are walking around saying, hey, now all things are lawful for me. And Paul doesn't get into all that. He doesn't necessarily dispute that now, but he adds to it. Okay, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Yeah, it's lawful if you want to go stick your tongue in a light socket, but that's not exactly helpful for you. That's probably going to cause problems to you and to the light, right? Uh, the other saying that comes up, uh, he quotes, food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for the food. Oh, no, wait, and the stomach is meant for food, right? The implication is here, well, God gave me certain anatomical parts that are clearly meant for sexual activity and sexual activity for these anatomical parts. And so if I want to have sexual activity, okay, great, well, off we go. And again, Paul doesn't dive into that. He doesn't go too deep into that, but he, but he adds to it. He says, yeah, but the body wasn't made for sexual immorality. Yeah, stomach was made for food and food was made for the stomach. But if you choose to subsist on a diet of cheesesteaks and oats, potato chips and orange soda, uh, the body is going, or the, the stomach is not going to do so well and life in the body is going to start to break down. At least that's what people tell me. <laughs> uh, in a similar way, okay, yeah, there's a certain way where the body was designed for sexual activity, but for sexual immorality, if you live a life, you know, just running after sexual immorality, however you want, right? Life in the body is going to break down because the body was not made for sexual immorality. That's part of his argument. Like, dare we say, like, take that even a little bit further. Like, if, like, let's just say that your wife was like, yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine. You want to go run around the prostitute? No problem. Here's $50. Go have a good time. Or, you know, or the, the prostitution was totally, you know, uh, uh, above, I don't know. Well, however you want, whatever argument you might want to come up to justify prostitution or whatever. Like, Paul's argument still is, yeah, but it's not going to go well for you because the body wasn't designed for that. And you say, okay, well, that's kind of a, I don't know, I guess, I guess, Paul, that's true, but that seems like a weird, strange argument against prostitution. And be that as it may, it's just interesting, and I think it's really important for our discussion, because what Paul is doing here is he's tapping into this theme that runs throughout all of Scripture, that... And it's a theme that runs throughout all scripture that sometimes we bristle up against, right? This idea that you were made by design, by a designer, uh, and you are not the designer. <laughs> or that you and I, we are creatures made by a creator who has a good, wise, gracious, and loving design and purpose for us. Or in other words, that you and I, we are not just cosmic accidents of a billion years of chemical uh chemical interactions or, I don't know, biological processes, whatever. No, no, you are people who are made by design, by a good, wise, intentional, and loving designer, right? And so part of, you know, the, the, the whole flow throughout Scripture is that a life well-lived, the life in pursuit of the good life, is always a life that is lived according to design, or life that is lived according to the purpose that your creator has established for you. I often give the example, you know, I, I'm not a very handy person. 
The only tool I really know how to use is a fork. <laughs> it gets messy food from the tape, from the plate to, to my mouth. and doesn't get my hands dirty. It's a wonderful thing, right? But if I'm driving down some desolate road and I don't have self-service and the car starts to have problems and I pull over the side of the road, I can't call anybody. I pop the hood and take a look at it. And I say, does anybody have a fork? <laughs> right? Because it's the only thing I know how to use. And I start taking a fork and I start jamming it in, you know, trying to pop a spark plug or something. I'm going to damage the fork because that's not what it was designed for. And who knows what condition my, my car will be at the end of the day, right? That's sort of the same kind of principle here that you were made by design. And Paul's argument, the body was not designed for sexual immorality and a life lived in rampant pursuit of that is a life that's going to break down in the body. Okay? You see part of his argument here? And part of the reason I stress this is because I think when we, maybe even within the church, like when we think about commandments in the Bible, or we think about the standards of holiness, or we think about Jesus' instructions for what it means to follow him with our life. Sometimes we have this negative idea associated with commandments and laws and standards of holiness as if, I don't know, that God was this sort of cosmic killjoy who sits up in heaven and says, all right, what are some laws I can give to my people to make sure they're not having more fun than I'm having? Right? I don't know why we sometimes have that negative association with that. It might be because we've embraced this sort of individual liberty ethic. Or it could be we're doing sort of what the Corinthian church is doing and pushing Paul's statements about freedom from under the law a little further than what he would intend. Right? But I think what is much more helpful is actually to think of God as saying, well, no, first of all, as I've given commandments and instructions to my people, first of all, I'm telling them essentially who I am. Right, I'm giving commandments according to my own character, my own nature, and I'm giving them basically instructions for what it means to live in my image. Or when Jesus is giving instructions to his people about what it means to follow him, remember this is the same Jesus who came and said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And here's how you do that. Follow me, do what I do, live your life like me. This is a very good and gracious thing. Okay, so maybe that's point one. Paul's whole argument here is this is by design. And so, yeah, there are certain, if you will, commandments or standards or instructions. And yes, these come with certain limits or restrictions, right? But the argument here, but this is good for you because this is what it means to live by design. Not to keep harping this point, but I think I could just say here, we all know this that the pathway to a life well-lived and well-enjoyed is embracing sort of the limits of the body and living according to those limits. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, every summer, our family, we like to do a camping trip, and we tend to like to do that somewhere more up north where there are bigger hills and mountains that you can hike on. So we like to go up to Acadia National Park or maybe the White Mountains in New Hampshire and hike around, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. But I was doing something mildly uh, athletic uh, this past week or uh, assertive. And, and all of a sudden, I, whew, I'm realizing how out of shape I am. <laughs> or I was noticing, okay, maybe I put on a few pounds. Maybe I need to take more seriously the whole cheesesteak and oats potato chips thing or whatever. And I'm realizing that, okay, come the end of the summer, if I want to be able to hike up these big hills, especially with a Georgia or Jeffrey on my shoulders, okay, I'm going to need, be, need to limit my cheesesteak intake or maybe going to need to limit the amount of time I spend in front of a book or the TV or whatever and instead go for a jog or go to the gym or whatever, right? Because if I want to enjoy the life that I want to enjoy this summer, 
uh, I have to accept the limits on this body that is designed a certain way and live according to that. And it's a similar way. I, it's very helpful for me to think about the instructions that are given to the Bible, in the Bible for God's people. We are people made by design and a life well lived. This is the argument in the Bible is one that lives in conformity to that design and to the instructions that God gives graciously, lovingly, wisely to his people. Okay. Have I beat that dead horse enough? Because here's the second point, second, Paul's second line of argument is that, yeah, you actually don't belong to yourself, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've entrusted your life to him, actually you belong to Jesus. Uh, I don't want to dive too much into it. He, he's actually making a bigger point here in relation to sexual immorality. He's First of all, he's going after a certain religious perspective that would have been rampant in Corinth that sees this radical distinction between the body and the spirit. And the body's just going to burn up and die anyway. It's the spirit that's eternal and lives on. So it doesn't matter what I do in this frail temporal body. What really matters is what I do with my spirit. And Paul addresses that in two ways. First of all, he says, yeah, actually about that whole destroyed body thing. Remember, God raised Jesus from the dead with the intention of raising your physical body from the dead as well, too. Eternity is a life not lived disembodied, but in these wonderful bodies that God has designed and given to us. But then secondly, he's saying, hey, there's not such a hardened distinction between body and spirit. Right? And, you know, part of the point he's making here is that, you know, when you entrust your life to Jesus, you know, one of the first and coolest things that he does is he deposits his spirit into you. He joins you to himself in a very intimate way by putting his own spirit within you so you can begin to experience some of his life. And so for Paul, it's this kind of argument. So, uh, you know, you, you, you now are someone who is joined to Jesus and when you go and engage in sexual immorality, what are you doing? But you're becoming one flesh with this prostitute. And now there's this weird thing where you're taking this life joined to Jesus and you're joining it with a prostitute, right? And he's saying, this can't happen in the church. But here it is. The bigger point for our discussion is him saying, don't you see? You are a temple, a living temple of the Holy Spirit, which means you don't just belong to yourself, but you belong to Jesus and you were bought with a price. In other words, what Paul is doing here is, again, something that the whole Bible does. The Bible is an invitation to you to live a life of deeper belonging, living a life of belonging, not just to yourself, but belonging in relationship with your creator. It's an invitation into a life of belonging in relationship with God's family, with his people, the church. It's a life lived in belonging in relationship with this Jesus who gave his own life to redeem your life and to draw you back into relationship with his creator, relationship with himself, relationship with his people. Okay, and the point is, or what this has to do with our discussion, is that anybody who's engaged in relationships, you know that relationships involve a certain limiting or a certain binding, right? When we engage in a relationship, I willfully choose to bind or to limit myself so that I can become a friend or or a neighbor or a spouse or a parent, right? When Amy and I got married, stood up there, 
made our, what did we do? We made our promises. We made our covenant vows to one another. And in that moment, right, what's happening in those vows, I'm choosing to bind and to restrain myself so that I can be a husband now to Amy. I'm choosing to bind and restrain some of my old former self so that I can now be a husband to Amy, which I want to be. (laughs) I want to spend my life living with this woman. I want to be a husband to her. And so I willfully bind and constrain myself in promise to you. Oh, or when Callie was born and I first became a father and then every other kid, asked, right, when I first had to change that diaper <laughs> or wake up in the middle of the night to try to get her to go back to sleep, I'm realizing, okay, there's a binding going on here. My old self, my old interests and desires of who I was, right, that's on, well, I don't know, hold it at the very least so I can be a father to Callie and to all of my kids, which happens to be one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life. So I willfully will bind myself to be a father to her, right? I don't think it's any coincidence that as this ethic of radical individualism and individual freedom continues to rise, there's this, also this rise of a breakdown in relationships, right? Statistics would say that right now, uh, as a people, as a culture, we are more lonely than we ever have been. Uh, or you can just look at how, you know, relationships on a broader cultural level are breaking down. We're, we're more divided, more polarized, and more antagonistic towards one another, perhaps, than we've ever been, or at least been for a good while. Or you can look at the rising statistics of the breakdown, you know, in, in marriages, in families, in friendships. I was listening to a debate a few years ago uh, between... Christian and atheist, and it was an interesting debate because they were arguing as historical characters, kind of like a role-playing debate. (laughs) And so you had the Christian arguing as the historical person of St. Augustine, and you had the atheist arguing as Bertrand Russell, right? The great atheistic philosopher, the great advocate for human liberty and human freedom, the most eloquent advocate, if you ask me, of human liberty and human freedom, right? And so the debate was just fun. It was interesting to listen to. And as the atheist was arguing in behalf of Bertrand Russell in defense of human liberty and not living your life constrained to religious principles and ethics, all this stuff, like, I can't remember if it was brought up, but the the thing I kept saying in my, in my head was, yeah, and Bertrand Russell was horrible at relationships, <laughs> Five marriages that ended in disaster, partly because he refused to give up his mistresses to restrain himself or to constrain himself in any way, bind himself in any way to be a husband to these five women, right? And that's the natural result of if you're going to live unfettered, unbound, man, you'll never know the joy and the privilege of living in genuine, honest, loving relationships. And so, yeah, there is a binding there. And yeah, does the Bible suggest, well, no, does the Bible call us to a binding, a certain limiting? Yeah, it is, because it's calling us into relationship. It's calling us into a deeper sense of belonging in relationship to our creator, to his family, and to this Jesus Christ, who, and here's really good news, who made the first move towards you. This is really good news. This Jesus who first chose to bind himself and to restrain and restrict himself by laying his whole life down and suffering death on a cross so that he might live in relationship with you. Just bear with me here last few minutes. 
you know, part of the reason that's such good news is because I am mindful that the other reason why there's such this rise in this libertarian ethic is partly because we don't trust anybody else. I mean, perhaps rightly so. We've been burned in relationships with other people. And we see a lot of the systemic problems that are just all throughout our cultural institutions that are even working its way throughout the church, right? And so, yeah, no, I'm not going to trust my life to somebody else or some other institution or some other book of principles or whatever. No, I'm going to live my own life on my own terms. It's like in that sense of fear and lack of trust, it's almost like we choose the lesser of two evil and say, okay, I will only trust my own mind to know what is best for me. And what the Bible actually would want to challenge you to is actually say to entrust your life to Jesus is actually the safest place, the safest thing you can do, right? Because this Jesus, when he had all the power in the world and he had all the rights and privileges that were rightfully due to him, he gave that all up. He made the first move towards you and he willfully chose to bind and restrict himself even to the point of death so that you could know true life. And so that you could be drawn in relationship with him. So you can know this Jesus is not one whose love is fickle, whose faithfulness wavers. He's the one who will always be good and gracious and faithful to you as you entrust your life to him. And you choose to bind yourself in relationship with him. This is really good news, too, uh, because this is the title of the series, by the way, Hard Questions and Good News. You're going to hopefully hear some good news as well. This is really good news that God would call you into relationship with Jesus because as you enter into relationship with Jesus and you are joined to him, you get an advocate before the judge and the justifier, the one whose opinion ultimately matters. And part of the reason I say that, like you can, you can just sort of see in our culture, there is this epi- that this rise in libertarian freedom actually isn't boding as well as we would have hoped for our mental health. Because when you live your life on your own terms and the only opinion that matters is your own, that's sort of the eth, that's sort of the advice that's given. We find there's a problem with that because sometimes we are our own worst critics. And we are our own worst judges. And we have these standards of holiness for ourselves that we can't possibly attain to. And so you see rises in shame and guilt and mental illness and suicide for a whole variety of reasons, but that's certainly part of it. And not only that, but it's just patently not true. <laughs> when, when I was growing up in Generation X, Gen X, uh, right? The whole, that was the whole thing, right? It was the rebellious spirit. Like you live your life on your own terms and you don't care what anybody else thinks. You just care what you think, right? Cause you're your ultimate judge. Nowadays, right? Or, and back then, the other part of that, that thing was, and you be gracious to others. You let them live their life on their own terms and you tolerate whatever life they choose. I don't remember 10 years ago, you heard that word tolerant, right? That's, everybody's, tolerant has gone away cause that's not good enough. Right, because we understand, no, no, it actually doesn't work that everybody's just tolerant and you leave me to be my own judge. We need the affirmation of others. We need the affirmation of some outside judge. And so nowadays, the name of the game is, no, you actually have to affirm. Right? Whatever choices, whatever lifestyle, everybody else wants to plead because we're, we're insecure and we don't do well being our own judges. We need a culture to judge and to affirm. Man, And that leads us into all sorts of problems, which we don't have time to talk about here this morning. But what would ultimately set us free from that? 
is to know you have an advocate who stands before the true judge and justifier, the one whose true opinion ultimately counts. And to have that advocate daily stand before that judge and say, yeah, those guys, they're with me. (laughs) I'm joined to them. They're joined to me. I love them. They love me. I died for them. I've bestowed on them my righteousness. Uh, So you treat them the way you treat me. And so that now when the father looks at you, when the judge and the justifier looks at me, he doesn't see all my screw-ups, all my failures, all my shame, but instead he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And he says, yes, you're in the right. That's good news. (laughs) Last thing, it's good news too. Because remember, to entrust my life to Jesus, to bind myself to him, to take on his instructions for my life, is to follow the one who, again, who came and said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And it's to do it and trust your life to the one who said, hey, if you believe in me and you follow me, though you die, yet you will live. In other words, it's to entrust your life to this Jesus who has come that you may have life to the full in this life and in the next. And if you want to know what true freedom is, learn how to live out of the shadow and the chains of death. It's a myth if anybody tells you they're living free in the secular cultural world today because nobody lives free out of the shadow of the sting and the chains of death. And there's a whole handful of secular psychologists that will gladly back me up on that. You want to know true freedom, find out how to live out from the shadow and the chains of death. And the Bible says there's only really one way to do that, and it's to follow the one who came walking out of a tomb. This Jesus, who is giving you instructions for what it means to live in relationship with him and enjoy life to the full in this life and the next. All to say, if you're here this morning, curious about Christianity, curious about Jesus, you have these great questions. Three things I would challenge you with today. One, question where your own questions come from. Are they based on assumptions that maybe you have been culturally conditioned to believe? Question that. Ask those questions. Two, see how the Bible talks about whatever, commandments, standards of holiness, what it means to follow Jesus, both as this gracious gift to you of how to live according to design, but then three, consider it as also what it means to live in relationship with the one who has the best interests, your best interests in mind, the one who provides perfect justification for your life, and the one who leads you into life to the full. If you want to know more about what that looks like or how you do that, be happy to talk with you anytime or keep coming around. We'll, we'll be talking about that all throughout the summer here. For the rest of us, just remember that our job is to also to help people think through those things, to help people question certain assumptions maybe they have about life or to just to point them towards the goodness of what it means to follow the scriptures as the pathway to life to the full by design or the pathway into life, into beautiful relationship with your creator, with the son of God, with his church family. And I would encourage you to live that out in a joyous way, (laughs) right? Live out the joy of faithfully following Jesus, being obedient to him. Like that's what the world needs to see, that this is not drudgery, but that it actually genuinely is. Everything that we say it is, that a pathway to the good life and the pathway to relationship with our creator. So live it out with joy. Let people see that and be prepared to give an answer when they ask why, okay? So there you go. That's this morning. Is Christianity a straitjacket? 
I guess if you're going to look at the goal of my life is just unfettered human freedom and responsibility. But man, there's joy to be found there and there's life to the full to be found there. And so my prayer is that God would lead you, whoever you are, wherever you are, into that life in the fullness as you entrust your life to Jesus. And may he lead you into the joy of that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.